on this episode of Never Surrender. It was deeply frustrating. I had to sort of mourn it. And I'd been through enough situations of, of projects dying that to recognize that, like, it's never coming back. I'm never going to get it back. I have to sort of move on to the next thing. I can't, there's nothing I can do can change the situation. So therefore, I have to just acknowledge that that's a thing that's happened and sort of move on to the next uh, state of it. And, but it was, it's really tough because you know this thing is, you know something is going to probably have your name on it, but you have no control over it. And it's, it's frustrating because to have spent that much time in it and in some ways it would be easier if it had actually just died. I'm Jack Hergith. And I'm Stephen Kramer Glickman. And this is Never Surrender. The show where we sit down with the most successful people in the entertainment industry to talk about failure and how they pushed through it and never gave up. Because we've all failed. We've all had setbacks. Yeah, we've all questioned whether to keep going. But at some point, everybody struggles. Yeah, I mean, I've been let go from some of my favorite jobs. You and me both. We just hope that by listening to this podcast, it will help give you the strength to never surrender. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Our guest today is responsible for some of the greatest blockbusters in the movie business. He's the screenwriter behind the movies Go, Charlie's Angels, Big Fish, and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Most recently, he co-wrote the 2019 live-action adaptation of the Disney classic Aladdin. He's also an accomplished author, writing the successful fiction series Arlo Finch. But his success as a writer did not happen overnight. He's had his scripts passed over, projects canceled, and struggled to make it in the business. But he never gave up. This is John August. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm usually on the other side of this table recording a podcast, so it's strange to be the guest, but it's nice. Let's start with how how this all began for you in your career. Where, um, wh- When did you decide uh, to become a writer? Because I know originally it was journalism, but mm-hmm. where, where did it go from journalism into yeah, you know, like just just in general, just being a writer. How did that? You know, I always was a writer. So even growing up in Colorado, I would write stories. I'd write, you know, from a school newspaper. I thought I wanted to be maybe a journalist because like that's a professional writer, and so I could do that. So I went to journalism school at Drake University, and it was while I was there I discovered there's such a thing as a screenplay that mm-hmm. that, that movies are written before they're filmed, which seems so obvious now because everyone sort of talks about that, but no one was really talking about this in the late '80s, and so. Um, I was reading my premiere magazine. I saw, like, you know, Nora Ephron is a screenwriter. Like, there's a person who writes movies. And uh, I, once I was able to find my first script, which was 
um, Steven Soderbergh's script for Sex, Lies, and Videotape. It was the mm-hmm. first one I could buy in a bookstore because it had the script and it had its production diaries. And I could watch the movie and flip through the script. It's like, wow, everything they're saying and everything they're doing, it's in the script first, and um, which was such a revelation, which seems so, again, obvious now, but it was not obvious to me at the time. So once I read that script, I decided, okay, I really want that job of being the person who writes the movies before they become movies. So I applied to film school and I came out to Los Angeles and started. What was the first thing you wrote? The first, you got there? The first thing I wrote, I wrote a, um, the first part of this, of this movie. I wrote kind of a short film that a friend really wanted to direct. And it was about um, a young woman who tries to pull off a tiny drug deal at Christmas. And it was just wrote as a short and people said, oh, that's well written. Um, the friend never made the movie, but it sort of sat there. And then I went off and wrote a full script um, for a romantic tragedy set in Colorado. It was like my first full-length screenplay. It was kind of overwritten. Was, but that, it, was that here and now? Here and now, yeah. Right. It was kind of overwritten, but it got you know people reading it. It got me an agent. It sort of got stuff started. And you know, not too long thereafter, I was being hired to write How to Eat Fried Worms, which is a kid's book adaptation. Oh, my God, of course. And uh, uh, an adaptation of Wrinkle in Time, which was not the movie oh, that wow. became sure. but Wrinkle in Time, but... You know, I got my chance to sort of adapt some books that I loved as a kid. Not, not the film with giant Oprah. Where not Oprah not is giant Oprah. Seventy five so feet tall. Based on the same book, but a different different chain of title leading to that one. Sure. And was sure. this while you were still in school? Or this was this was graduated. I had graduated by that point. So uh, this was two years out of uh, film school. By that point, I'd done that. So I, I while I was in film school, I was doing the classic things you do internships where you like read scripts for places and write up coverage, which are these book reports for um, for sure. screenplays. Um, I was doing that. I ended up getting a job, you know, writing that coverage. And so I would be paid a hundred dollars a script to write up these reports. And it sort of burns a hole in your brain. You read just a ton of scripts, Mm. but it was really good training and figuring out what my actual taste was, like what I liked to see on the page and what I didn't like to see on the page, what never worked for me. And so I was trying to write the same time I was reading all these scripts. When you had written here and now, Mm -hmm. and uh, if I'm correct, um, I guess your instructor took a, took a liking to the script and mm-hmm. sent it to an agent he knew, and then you started going out on meetings. You know, what was that process like, sort of taking these, you know, your first Hollywood meetings, like, you know, you're getting exposed to different agents and agencies. You know, what was that like? Well, a professor had read the script and sent it to an agent she knew, and I just remember coming home from work every day and looking to see whether there's a new message on the answer machine because I kept, like, I was just so, all my hopes were pinned on the fact would would this agent at CAA have actually read it and gotten back to us and, and said she loved it. Like, you know, when, when all your hope is just pinned on one thing and a person oh, you can't yeah. control and you're waiting to hear news. So, like, three sure. weeks pass, four weeks pass, and nothing happens. So what were you doing in that time? Just sort of, like, I was, going crazy? Or? I, I was writing other stuff and I was just mm-hmm. trying to move on. I was probably writing Go at that point. Okay. So I... It was during a summer where I had an internship between my two years of school, and I was working in the physical production department at Universal, and I had a job that was really unnecessary. I was, I was like filing a couple of papers a day and just sort of sitting around. And so I would come home from work having not used my brain at all. So I'd, I would work for three or four hours. I would handwrite pages every night, and then over lunch, like in the Universal cafeteria, I would type up those pages. And so I really got through a lot of work wow. in that summer and finished out what ultimately became Go. How did you know you were good at it? Like at what point did you say, oh, wow, I'm pretty good at this. I, I could make a career out of this. Enough people said I was pretty good at it that I started to believe them. And it started with the thing I first described, which was this 
um, tiny drug deal happening at Christmas. I'd written it as a short. It was you know 30 pages long, but people read it like, oh, I think that's actually the best thing you've written. I really like that. And I, I'm curious what happens to all these characters next. Is that what gets what got cultivated into Go? That that's, became, that yeah. became so Go. So that was yeah. X was, yeah. the, was the short? Yeah. Yeah, and then it became Go. Got yeah. it. So it, it was just the first section that ultimately became the movie Go. And so I'd written this tight little short film and I knew I couldn't expand it from the inside. So I restarted it twice and that became the movie Go. And that became the first screenplay that I, I sold independently. It wasn't an assignment, but I, I, I'd written the whole thing and we sold it to somebody. Um, I, uh, I was 20 years old mm-hmm. when Go came out in the movie theater. I was living in New York City and uh, I, I went to see the film and then immediately was like, oh, I should go to a rave. <laughs> um, I'm not a person that takes drugs. I'm not a drug person per se. I'm. Uh, I got to said rave in New York City, and uh, um, I started panicking. Uh, Natural that I was in a dangerous place, and I actually called my mom mm-hmm. at 20 years old back in California going you know, like help how do I leave this place it's very scary there's a lot of people <laughs> dancing I'm too neuro- I'm a too neurotic a Jew to be at mm-hmm. there's not a lot of neurotic Jews I think yeah. at the uh, at the at the go uh, in the in the go film yeah. I, there's a Jay Moore Jay Moore is a little neurotic mm-hmm. um, but I definitely Saw that movie and then ran out and tried to do the thing. And I was like, I am not qualified to do to do this. This is you're not qualified to rave. I'm not qualified to rave at all. I'm not a rave. Not qualified to rave. I How much of that film is autobiographical? I would say a lot of it. A lot of my inner life is autobiographical in that movie. So like, I'm very much the Claire character in that movie. I'm the the one who wants to hang out and wants to have fun but it's, it's always sort of a little bit the wet blanket who always mm-hmm. like is that safe is that really a good idea who ends up ultimately having the best time of everyone um because i i always approach things with like sort of um low expectations or sort of like you know nervousness and then once i break th- through those i end up having a great time but i'd say it's autobiographical in the sense of my experience of being in my 20s was like you could just do really stupid shit and somehow you survived and how did that film attract producers or how did that get into the now, development we, pipeline luck and mm-hmm. so really what happened is um we sent out the script sort of like you send out a script to the town so all the studios read it a bunch of producers read it and everyone liked it they said like oh this is really well written we don't think it could get made that doesn't have that sort of the teen elements that you sort of expect to have in that movie um so it got me a bunch of meetings but no one wanted to actually make it except mm-hmm. for one tiny little production company called banner who said we can't pay you very much money at all, but we'll have you be a producer. You'll stay involved the whole time. So I said, yeah, let's do it. Let's yeah, absolutely let's awesome. figure it out. And so we went out to directors. We found Doug Lyman, who had just done Swingers. Sure. Um, we started casting. We found this great cast. Um, the We were a couple weeks away from filming, and everything fell apart. Um, our foreign financing said, you know, we need a, a white male star between these ages and these ages. And like, there was no white male star for it but in that time we put together this cast which was actually terrific and so who was was it the same cast that it, was, it was the same cast movie? yeah so wow. so we had sarah Polly, who people liked a lot katie holmes who hadn't done anything but people were really high on her from, from uh, the, dawson's creek yeah dawson's creek hadn't come out yet but people oh, wow. people people knew she was good yeah and she'd been in the ice storm um you know uh, we had Scott Wolf, who was a, a TV course, star. Sure. Jay Moore, people recognized. So yeah. people liked that cast. And so we were able to get a U.S. distributor who ended up taking it worldwide. And so wow. it, it was like this weird thing where we became a Columbia picture overnight. 
and uh, oh we're God. able to keep shooting. So, so how amazing. close was it to not going? Like, was it oh, pretty um, close to not going at all? No, I mean, the plug had been pulled, and the other producers and I had just we just sat down on the phones and called everybody we knew to see if anybody would step in to you know take over the movie. Did you wow. sleep during that time? Like, uh, uh, well, like after it had been the plug had been pulled, like until the movie was picked up. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, luckily I was busy doing other things, so I really wanted to go to happen, but I also had other stuff to do. If I, if it had, if it had been my only thing then I think I would have just melted down, but, um, because I had other stuff to write for other folks, I knew it would be okay, but I also really knew I wanted the movie to, to make it. And so yeah. it's one of the situations where like, you know, sometimes I'm really reluctant to pick up the phone and call people, but I wasn't in this case. It's like if I'd had a good general meeting over someplace, I'm like, okay, you said you liked the script. So this is your chance to make the script with this cast and with this director. Say yes. Just please say yes. Yeah. And we were lucky that uh, Andre Giannetti and Ricky Strauss over at Sony said yes. And we got the money to do it. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Go ended up becoming such a big cult classic and people loved that movie. It was, uh, it was a successful film. And it, uh, did, it did you feel like... That puts you on a good track as far as being somebody that people could rely on that would make a movie that could make money and and do well. Yeah, it's weird because the script got a lot of attention and sort of got me a lot of meetings. It even got me started on work because people could look at the script and see whatever they wanted to see. So if they wanted a comedy, they're like, oh, he can write funny. If they wanted action, they're like, oh, he can write action or he can write drama. They could they could see whatever they wanted to see in it, which was useful, yeah. which is great. But, Did you start off with that intention? Like, I want to write a script that has all these different sort of genres under one roof, and then people can see what they want to see, and, you know, I can demonstrate all my abilities? To Did some, you with that intention? To some degree. So I finished the script after I had already been hired to uh, do A Wrinkle in Time and How to Eat Fried Worms. And at that point, I had been kind of pigeonholed as a person who adapted kids' books. And so I was only getting sent stuff with like gnomes, elves, dwarves, and Christmas. Why, and, why would you get uh, pigeonholed? Just because like that? those were the two, you know, official writing samples people could read, and Got they were very, they were they were kids comedies or, or kids dramas. They were they were they were really young. Yeah. And so, you know, when I finished Go and could send that out as a thing, it's like, oh, I can do something else beyond what you're sort of sending to me, and yeah. that got me a whole new round of sort of the water bottle tour of Los Angeles where you go and sit in these general meetings and like, you know, drink your bottle of water as you talk about the things you want to write and what they want you to write. And you meet all those people. Uh, Then, then coming up right on the heels of that is Titan AE. Mm -hmm. Now I I wanted to ask you about this because I was a little confused. I I know that you were a writer on that movie, but also uh, on IMDb, it says that Ben, and Edlund, ben and, Edlund and Joss Whedon, and were, also Joss Whedon were also writing on it. So did you guys write together as a team oh, or, or you got hired into write a draft of it and then other people got hired to write a draft? Like, yeah. How did that work? Um, so in animation, but also in, in live action features, sometimes, uh, you know, a person writes on it for a while and then they go away and another person comes on. So rewriting is pretty common, yeah. especially in animation. And so when I came on to Titan AE, um, it was, bef- I think Go had shot, but hadn't, we were still in editing. And so I had no movies to my name. Um, and they were bringing me in to just do some dialogue work on the script. And I'm not sure, I'm not, I'm not quite sure in the sequence of events, like who was before me and who was after me, but it was a script that had been around for a while. Um, so I did the work I could do on it. I think we went through three directors in like the month I was working on it. Like it, it was changing a lot in terms of the approach, the visual approach. But I, I, I wrote on it and, you know, tried to, do the character work they wanted. 
and then I just go away. And then like two years later, you see a cut of the film. It's like, oh, some of my stuff is in there. And some stuff is very different than what I had written. And that's okay. Especially in animation where you feel like, you know, I knew I was just, I was carrying the ball for a certain distance. I was, sometimes you describe the difference as like, there's movies where I'm clearly the artist where like I had the vision and this is my vision and this is how it's all going to be. Sure. And there's other times where I'm the cabinet maker where I'm just providing my craft to sort of make this thing work better, but it's not my, my movie at all. And so Titan E is not my movie at all. Like I, I wrote some on it. I, I deserve just the credit I, I get, which is like a third. So here's a question that I have for you. So this movie comes out mm-hmm. Titan E, um, which you have a, a part in, mm-hmm. in, in, in the creation of the movie, the it's like something somewhere in the realm of production budget was 75 million and it made like 30 million or so worldwide. Yeah. Does that have any effect on your career at all? No, like does it? No, not, not a bit. Does so, it affect you? Um, like, um, did it affect you emotionally in any way or were you just like, Nope, not mine. And just kind of continue. Yeah. I would say, it was actually a very good lesson in that, you know, that was the movie that got made that had my name on it. But like, I had so much less emotional investment in it than twenty other movies I'd I'd written in that time yeah. or had even written before then, where I really had a tremendous investment just by roll of the dice had not happened. And so, I'm really happy for the movie, but it's not sort of mine in a meaningful way. Well, so what I'm always so curious about because I I was in a movie that. Uh, and the budget was seventy around seventy two million, mm-hmm. and then the movie made around two hundred million. Great. And I remember panicking, like the whole first like two three weeks of it being out, yeah. going, "Oh my god, this isn't gonna, this isn't gonna do well." And what am I gonna do? And like, and what's gonna happen? And is it my fault? And like, you know, neurotic, mm-hmm. you know. But but I was like really worried about like what I could have done to do better. And I was just an actor on it. It doesn't, yeah. you know. But it, but that's what I'm so curious about too. Is like when you write a movie mm-hmm. and then the movie comes out and it doesn't do exactly what you were hoping it would do. What do you do? Do you deal? How do you deal with it? Do you? Does it matter to you, mm-hmm. or do you kind of say like, "Well, I did my part, and I was I'm proud of what I did," and you just kind of move on? There's a moment earlier in the process where you go through a lot of those emotions and process it, and that's when, as a writer, you see the first cut of a movie. So when a movie has shot, and you're sitting down in like a you know, little screening room, and you're seeing the first cut, and it, it's um, really nerve wracking um, because you don't know whether the things you wrote on the page really worked on the screen. You don't know sort of how it's all going to come together. And in the case of Go, like I saw the first cut and I quickly left the theater and I thought I was going to throw up. I didn't throw up, uh, but then I came back in and just like, it just didn't work. I mean, it, mm-hmm. there, fundamentally things didn't work. And I couldn't even remember kind of like what was in the script. Like how, I, I was there for every moment we shot. I was, I was directing second unit. So I was there for the whole time. And right. I'm seeing this cut and I'm like, I don't recognize this movie at all. I, I kept remember thinking like, maybe this movie can never come out because it's so bad. I know it will hurt me. Like, it could be better if this movie didn't come out. And uh, what I didn't know then, which I realized afterwards, is that first cuts are always dreadful. And especially for the writer who comes in pretty clean to the experience, um, you're like, you're watching this thing and like, oh my God, this is an absolute disaster. And wow. then you start doing the work and you start, you write up the notes and sort of trying to get scene by scene, shot by shot, moment by moment to get it back to where it needs to get, which is not 
the screenplay, which was the plan for making the movie, right? But for like with the movie we actually shot, what is the best version of that? And so it's you know figuring out how you're going to take what's already shot, and then if there are going to be reshoots, figuring out like what the reshoots would be that would make this all possible. And so I had to do both of those things. And did you do reshoots on? We go? did re- we did reshoots on go that were crucial that were like that allowed us to bridge over some problems, you know, find new solutions for things. So a lot of the ending got reshot. Um, what was different about the ending? Um, we just realized, like, okay, the movie's not working. Um, so I wrote new stuff to do that. I wrote new connective bits that sort of get Claire into connecting w- with Gaines again. Just Sometimes they're just simple logic things where you just need new shots, but sometimes they really are new scenes. Yeah. Uh, now, you, you have developed... Uh, I want to get into talking about your relationship and, and working with Tim Burton, but uh, before we get to that, Charlie's Angels. Oh, amazing! Oh my god! Yeah, I'm so happy with Charlie's uh, the first movie. So Charlie's Se- Angels. The second movie was really cool too, though. Thank you. The They're second- both cool movies. Thank you. The second one was it was a harder situation for me, so I can't really look at it objectively. I got really drunk last year and watched it for the first time since it came out. <laughs> really? And so I sort of live tweeted my experience of it um, because I, I, I had not watched it since, it since it came out. But the first movie um, was a great experience. It was that sense of, um, you know, just approaching it, just sitting down on a couch with Drew and talking through what it, the movie felt like, uh, what we wanted it to feel like, and then only going at it from an emotional point of view, um, which was sort of like to be sort of really proud of these girls who are giant dorks when they're off, when they're not on the job, but really professional when they're on the job. And getting that feeling right, and then I had to sort of reverse engineer a whole plot that could actually support these characters. That's so uh, cool. And it was, it was a terrific experience. Really, really, really hard to make. And there were fights every day. Um, just because you have a bunch of really creative people who all have different visions for exactly how stuff's going to work. And so on every day... I described it as fighting the monster, which was you weren't quite sure who was going to be the monster. Some days you were going to be the monster, mm. but there's always going to be a monster to fight, and everyone have to gather up together to fight the monster. Wow! Um, and it was it was that way kind of through the whole thing, and that there was also tremendous love, and um, the town was really against us. Everyone would assume that the girls were fighting with each other, which they weren't. And uh, then we the trailer was awesome, and then like we had a vision for like oh it can feel like the trailer and then we were able to recut and reshoot the movie to actually match that, that spirit. And, uh, uh, it played like gangbusters. Charlie's angels was so much different than the original show. It was so much cooler and so much like more, uh, positive towards women and the way that they worked. And then, and, uh, and so funny and nerdy and yeah. like, it was just, it was cool. There's Thank a, you. it's a cool film. Yeah. I, we really, you know, Did I it. say it was cool? Just <laughs> checking with our producers. I'm pretty sure I said it was cool. We really wanted it to be a giant hug around the original series. Not be a spoof of the original series, but right. to really just embrace it for all its flaws, but it's all its wonderfulness. And so we liked that the girls in Charlie's Angels in the original series, those women felt like they were friends. They probably mm-hmm. weren't friends in real life, but it felt like they were a team. And so we wanted that sisterly thing. I always described it as um, it's about these uh, three princesses who work for their father, who's the king, but who they've never met. It's like this is weird fairy tale quality, yeah, and uh, and just really embracing that that feeling, that spirit. And then that movie kind of set you up for adapting things more, like being the guy who can adapt stuff, because you've done that a lot. I've done that a lot, a lot of amazing. Yeah, things. so um, yeah, I did get some other TV adaptations. I did a Fantasy Island that uh, that I really loved that never happened. Um, 
But at the same time I was doing Charlie's Angels, um, I'd gotten the rights to the book Big Fish. And so I'd set oh that up at, at Sony. And so uh, I had to sort of put that on, ha- on pause while I was doing uh, Charlie's Angels, but I was able to go back and do that. And that was, again, an example of like, okay, you think I can only do this kind of thing, but I can also do something more than that. And so I was able to write that as a script that really showed, oh, this is there's a broader range you can consider me for. Yeah. And when you're adapting something like Big Fish or Charlie's Angels or any of the other projects you've adapted, like how, what is your mindset going into it? Mm-hmm. You know, are you conscious of, oh, I've got to be really careful with what I do. I don't want to mess this up. Are you, oh, I want to bring some new things into this. I want to bring a new voice, a different point of view. Like how sacred are you to the original material? And are you comfortable like veering off into some newer territory? Yeah, I think you always have to be really mindful of like what works about the original and sort of how much of what works about the original wants to come with you into the movie version. But you have to remember that you're always making a movie. You're not just taking a book or original series and like putting it through a machine to turn out the same thing because it won't work. It has to really be an experience of two hours sitting in a theater, watching it on screen, that's going to work. And so sometimes you can be very direct. And so the adaptation of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is a really direct adaptation of that book. And so I would save half of a a sentence if I needed to. Um, But I added the things that needed to be there to sort of fill out, flesh out the rest of it. Big Fish is vastly different than the underlying book. And so when I met with the author to get the rights, I had to tell him that like, listen, I'm going to probably change almost everything, but I won't change the spirit of what your book is about. I won't change the idea of your book, but the characters, the actual incidents, the plot is going to be really different. So just bear with me, but I think you'll like it. And you know, Daniel Walster's credit really did trust me there. And is that because you feel like what's in the book doesn't work as a film? I knew it didn't work as a film. It, it was just, it's a bunch of little tiny anecdotes that don't um, stitch together well. Like it doesn't, didn't feel like it had a flow. And so mm. I needed to really create a new structure to tell this story. So, you know, the Amos Calloway character and all the circus does not exist in the book. And it was basically just a real big tent that could take all these little small stories and put them in this context. Oh, wow. Um, you know, the father-son split works very differently in the book. So it was a really, it was rethinking everything. So, like, as you guys moved on from uh, Big Fish to the, Frank and Weenie, Right? Was Frankenweenie next? No, no, no. It was Corpse Bride. Corpse Bride. Yeah. Uh, was Corpse Bride adapted as well? Corpse Bride is an adaptation, and I was not the first writer. Pamela Petler had come on that before then. It was an adaptation of an old folktale. And uh, that was a situation where they were they built the puppets, they were getting close to production, and stuff just wasn't quite working. And so the producer flew me over to London, and I met with her. And I said, you know what? I really need some songs. I know Tim doesn't want this to be a musical, but I really need a song to sort of set up this world. And so, you know, that night in the hotel, I wrote um, According to Plan, which is the opening song for it. Oh, my God. And um, then Danny Elfman came over and he wrote music. And, and that, then we convinced, you know, we convinced him, like, if I could have another song, it would be this one. If I could have another song, it would be this one. And we just sort of wedged a bunch of songs in there. And it oh and it worked. And That's so amazing. Uh, so that was had yeah. you written songs before? Had you written music before? I, I'd written. Um, I wrote the song that's in the original Big Fish. Um, so twice the love. I'd written that. Oh, so I wasn't. Course. I wasn't afraid to do it. But uh, I just assumed I could do it. How oh, wow. so? With your process with Tim. Mm-hmm. So um, when you're working on Big Fish with him, how does that lead to the other projects that we talked about? You know, Frank and Weenie, Corpse Bride, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Dark yeah. Shadows. How does how does your collaboration with Tim grow? and continue are, are you bringing projects to him is he bringing projects to you he's How always that work? he's always bringing stuff to me um you know all those things you describe are things that he brought to me 
Um, so Charlie and the Chocolate Factories, uh, he'd sign on to do it. Um, and he'd sign on without really a script to, to sort of work off of. And so I sat down with him. Um, you know, I brought with him when I was in third grade, we had to write to a famous person. And so everyone was writing to, you know, Farrah Fawcett or, uh, <laughs> or, or Jimmy Carter. And I wrote to Roald Dahl. And Roald Dahl had written me back. And so I had a postcard oh, wow. from Roald Dahl. That's amazing. Um, that, you know, from 1978, 76, And um, so I brought that and showed it to him. But I also brought my experience of what Charlie and Chocolate Factory meant to me as a kid reading it. And I remember how I kept thinking that Charlie Bucket was so lucky, not because he got a ticket, but because he lived in this little house with all the people he loved. And how sad I felt for Willy Wonka because he lived all alone in this giant factory with no one and just these weird Oompa Loompas. And that that was really my way into Charlie and Chocolate Factory is just that Char- Charlie Bucket is not a protagonist who needs to grow and change. He's actually like a perfect little kid. Like you don't, he doesn't have like a huge thing to, to overcome. Whereas Willy Wonka is a really broken person uh, who needs some help. And so like wow. that, That's that he would be cool. more the protagonist. And so that I was flipping that those sort of roles around and, uh, He's like, that, that sounds good. Just do whatever you need. Like, I want everything from the book and as much more as you need. And it was a 20-minute meeting. But I could, I knew Tim well enough by that point that I, I could write things that I knew. Like, oh, Tim's going to love that. Like an orth, orthodontic headgear, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna <laughs> knock that it. out of the park. Yeah. So it was, it was great to be able to write for Tim. And at that point, I had just assumed it was going to be Johnny. And, you know, write with, with them in mind was great. There's still a lot more to come with John August when we come back. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So after working with Tim Burton on multiple films, we get to Dark Shadows. Yep. Uh, and you wrote on this movie for for a very short period of time, and then you were off. Basically, you were story by. There's like you have a story by credit on it. You're yeah. credited in some way. So something happened where 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 something changed <laughs> in the process of you writing with you know for Tim Burton. Yeah, that's so, a fair thing. So, so I'll what, say if what, you, if what you, happened. Yeah. Here? If you see a story by credit and someone else gets screenplay credit, like something else, something did something happen. Something went wrong. Yeah, something um, went uh, off. Uh, 
Tim Burton and Johnny Depp came to me with uh, Dark Shadows. They had gotten the rights to it. They really wanted to make a Dark Shadows movie. I said, of course, yes. And uh, I read all the books on Dark Shadows, got familiar with the series. And what I pitched and described is probably best thought of as it's like the Godfather, but with a vampire at the center. And oh, that's so, cool. so it's it's a multi generational family saga, but with a vampire at the heart of it. And so I, I went up to Maine. I did all my research. I sort of barricaded myself there and really tried to write. And I was really happy with the script, and everyone was really happy with the script. Uh, and it was co- a complicated script, but I, I, I thought we had done really well. Um, but in the year that I was writing that, um, uh, Twilight came out, and True Blood came out, and suddenly vampires, which weren't sort of anywhere, were everywhere. And so I got word back that Johnny and or Tim or some combination um, really wanted to push against all that stuff and make it funny. And uh, the thing I had written didn't, there was moments of comedy in there, but it was not a funny movie. Um, so another writer came in uh, and I, I don't know whatever happened to that draft. And, uh, but I, I, I need to credit Dick Zanuck, who's the producer of Big Fish, one of the producers of Big Fish and was the producer of uh, Dark Shadows. Uh, he was the one who called me to tell me that I was being replaced, that they were, they were going a different direction, that someone else was writing the movie. And that uh, phone call was one of the you know, top 15 terrible moments of my life. And yet it was such an incredibly classy move on his part to make that call, which was such a difficult call that other people would have tried to skirt around or do it in an email or have the agent call. But he's like, no, what? it's my responsibility to call and tell you that this is what's happening to sort of uh, sit with you on the phone in your frustration and grief and let you rant about it. And frustration uh, was was good. And so, uh, you know, my relationship with him remained remarkable to the end. He's passed away now. But uh, I just, I've just always respected sort of what he did in that really awkward, awful phone call. Wow. wow. Um, so the movie Dark Shadows, uh, I've read the final script. I've never seen the movie. Um, it has my name on it. And some people like it. But it's definitely not the movie I set out to make. And I think my biggest frustration is that there's there's no universe, I think, in which this movie I wrote will ever get made. And how long does it take you to recover mm. from something like that? Having such a close relationship with Tim, having spent so much time on the movie. Mm-hmm. When something like that happens to you, do you kind of dive yourself into the next project? Do you take some time to mourn it? You know, how do you... Yeah, I took is some ice cream involved? <laughs> ice cream involved. <laughs> is you there know, ice cream involved? And what flavor? You know what? Um... I was lucky that there were other things for me to work on. So again, like all my eggs weren't in that basket, but it really was, it was deeply frustrating. I had to sort of mourn it. And I'd been through enough situations of, of projects dying that to recognize like, it's never coming back. I'm never going to get it back. I have to sort of move on to the next thing. I can't, there's nothing I can do can change the situation. So therefore I have to just acknowledge that that's a thing that's happened and sort of move on to the next uh, state of it. And but it was, it's really tough because you know this thing is, you know something that's going to probably have your name on it, but you have no control over it. And it, it's it's frustrating because to have spent that much time in it, and in some ways it would be easier if it had actually just died. Now, when, when it comes to, there are some pitches uh, that you have uh, gone out and pitched, and we're going to talk about some of these. You did a pitch for Ghostbusters? I did a pitch for Ghostbusters. For a time there was going to be... Um, there was talk of doing an animated Ghostbusters. Um, okay. And uh, I came up with a pitch that I liked a lot. And uh, a certain person, decision maker, did not like it at all. Really? And so it was an experience. A certain person named what? <laughs> okay. uh, 
<laughs> so I, I had the experience of going into a room and pitching for a, in front of a ton of executives and uh, it going really, the pitch going really, really well. And then have one of the key decision makers just completely ripped down the pitch like in front of me oh. in a way that was like, wow, that is just crazy. This is actually happening right right here, right now. Like, I, could, I just want to acknowledge that this is a thing that's happening here. Right, right, right. And, uh, it was, and so as I left the room, I speed dialed my agents like, um, get me out of like, basically like, have like let's pass on this right now because i wanted to pass before they like passed on me because it was clear like this is never going to happen but i just wanted to be on the record that like no no no, it was my decision not to do that um, um i just want to say speaking of disappointments yeah. uh, that, you know because this is what the podcast is yeah. all about yeah um you also uh, had a foray into television yeah where you developed a show called dc yes and guess by all accounts uh, it didn't go well i think you've even stated on your blog it was a, a major disappointment so i just kind of wanted to you know, circle back with you about that and see what you know that was like for you you know what the difference was between you know writing features and getting into TV, and like was that what you expected? You know why was it you know a disappointment? How did you sort of recover from from that experience? Yeah, so DC was a TV show that I'd set up at the WB Network, and so the the idea behind it was like it's a sh- it's post Felicity, so like it's about these um, young people living together in this house in um, Dupont Circle different jobs around town and the pilot was pretty good the pilot script was pretty good the pilot I shot was okay um and it was good enough that we got a pickup for mid-season and so then we started actually making the show and that's when i realized that like oh shooting a pilot was like making a tiny movie but shooting a tv show is like nothing it's like it's like there's no other comparison to sort of how exhausting and terrible it was and we were writing, the writing staff was in Los Angeles along with editing. We were filming in stages in Toronto and then going to DC every two weeks to shoot exteriors, um, which no one should ever do. It's a terrible idea. <laughs> That's why no one ever does oh. that. And yeah. um, I was just flying this triangle, trying to keep all of this in the air, trying to manage a team that I had no experience managing. Uh, it was uh, just an epic train wreck. And there were moments during it where I would have these conversations and I could feel myself floating outside of my body and... Um, but there's never a good sign. <laughs> and I could see like this little red light recording in the corner, like, um, oh, this is a, a horrible moment that's happening, and I'm just a passenger in it. I'm just an observer. Like I am a documentary crew watching this thing happen. And so I got off the flight from DC at some point and turned on my phone, and my agent had left me a voicemail, like, yeah, they fired you. And so I, I got fired off Yikes. the show. Ooh. And um we had shot three episodes at that point, and I was never so relieved. It was just like a snow day. And I just, I just, I, just, <laughs> wow. I had, I felt so bad for the writers who were there. Melissa McCarthy, who became a friend who I convinced to be on the show. She was trapped on that show. It was not a good, exp- oh, and the other actors, I, I felt terrible for them, but I also, my mental health was vastly improved. So yeah. Mental health you, is such an important thing to have yeah. when you're when you're using your brain for everything that you're doing. Yeah, exactly, your creative it, brain. It's is actually about my, everything. It, yeah. it's, it's my only asset. Yeah. I, I, yeah, you're, like, you're like, if I take it's too much Xanax, I won't be able to. Uh, I didn't even know about write. Xanax at that point, but if I had known about Xanax, maybe I could have lasted a little bit longer, or I right. or I would have crashed out sooner. Okay, you have a movie, Aladdin. Mm-hmm. What what was that? experience like aladdin came about because so sometimes you go in and you're pitching specifically on a on a project or you're just meeting about a project other times you go in for a general meeting and so i went in with a general meeting for uh dan lynn's company a producer and just talking about the things that they were working on and other stuff and one of the many things that they were 
talking about it. They, they sort of pull out the list. They're like, oh, also, we talked to Disney, like, maybe doing an Aladdin movie. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally know how to do an Aladdin movie. Like, mm-hmm. like in that moment, like, I know what that is. And yeah. I think the next day or the day after, I came back and just like, I brought boards. I pitched them, like, this is what the movie is like to me. Like, these are the things that are fundamentally crucial things to bring forward. But these are the things which, if you're going to do as a live-action movie, um, would need to change. Like, if you're giving these people human motivations rather than cartoon motivations, here are the opportunities. Um, so specifically, as pitching Jasmine's new role, which is basically she is going to become Sultan of Agrabah, but has never really experienced the city. And so she has this need to sort of understand this place that she's meant to rule, um, that the relationship between uh, Aladdin and the genie is much more as buddies, as pals, rather than sort of like cocaine uncle. Um, <laughs> sure. And uh, so really what it's like, like you've never had a friend like me really leaning into the friend of it all. Oh, um, I like that a lot. And then just uh, stripping back the magic of the world so that there isn't, it's, the world is not magical until the genie shows up. And so that's a really yeah, grounded world. Cool. And so those are my key things. Went in, pitched it to Disney, got a yes, got going. And oh it, it happened God. really, really quickly, which was great. Um, yeah, how long did that take you to write? Uh, three months. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got sort of, you know, green lights came quickly and pretty easily. Um, we got a director on board and he and I just did not see the same movie. And that is a thing that happens. And I had no ability to stop um, that difference of opinion. Like it, so when push came to shove, I was going to get shoved and I got shoved. And so the... Wow. I still see a lot of intentions, a lot of my intentions and sort of like the, the fundamental choices I made are still there, but it's not quite the movie mm-hmm. that I had intended it to be. And so it's always a weird thing when you, then you finally... What were some of the things that he would push for? You know what? I'm not sure. So I got I got the boot, you know, after one more draft, and I'm not quite sure what, what were specifically his big things and what were Disney's sort of, you know, uh, moving back towards the... The, the middle moving towards a safer version. Um, but I think one of his fundamental interests was not having me around. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, well, that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's never fun. No, that's weird. But it's not weird. I mean, and, and, I, and I would say that, especially for a person who's generally written his own things, having another person who has that function is not comfortable. Mm-hmm. I would say, like, I would have a God. challenge working, you know, if I came onto a project where there had been another writer, I would have a challenge working with that writer, too. So I, I get that. Um, mm. But uh, it was really frustrating. And so unlike the Dick phone call on uh, Dark Shadows, I found out from a text from a friend who said, like, I can't believe they hired that other writer on the project. And it's like, oh, oh, you're kidding oh, me. Man. Yeah. So that's why, you know what? So you found out through a text that you were getting let go? Yes. Or, oh. Yeah. A similar thing happened to me once. So yeah. I can certainly identify it's not fun. Yeah. So so it's heartbreaking. And yet I still really like the movie ultimately. Like I, I, and it's, so I end up going back in and seeing early cuts and being able to give notes and and offer suggestions and sort of, I think the movie is better for my input later on down the road. Yeah. But it's frustrating. Like, you know, it's kind of my movie. It's, it's more my movie than Titan AE is honestly. Yeah. Wow. Last, last but not least, um, I gotta, I gotta say this. 
Grease prequel. Mm-hmm. You're doing the prequel yes. to Grease. Yes. yes. And how, how did that come about? That was another situation where it was a general meeting. So oh. it wasn't specifically about that. I was talking to the producer and he's, and he's going through the list and he's like, oh, and uh, we're also thinking about doing like what happens like the summer before Grease, like all the stuff that happens in the song Summer Nights. And uh, I'm like, Oh, oh, I know that. And mm-hmm. I, just, I basically just like t- in the room, I tackled that idea. It's like, wow. that's mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, so even on the drive back from his, his, the meeting at his office, I, I called him back and said like, so here's, here's, here are the beats. Like, this is the thing that happens. This is the opportunity here. And uh, the next day I had sort of all the beats of sort of what the, the, what the, the real story was behind it, sort of what the environment was going to be and figuring out um, sort of what the movie feels like and so that this afternoon before you guys came over like that was what i was writing and it's just a, an absolute oh, delight wow that's amazing. so cool but I, I should stress that like for people who are listening to this after the fact they're like oh yeah john Oz talks about that movie grease that prequel to grease he's writing that never happened <laughs> um so if people are listening in the archives like you know he was right, so excited right, right, in yeah. that moment um right, but sure. most of what i write doesn't shoot and so i i'm putting out this list of like 20 movies i've written that have not filmed and uh, so I, I these think are that, de- and you're talking about dead projects, dead projects. So these are movies that are full length movies I've written that have never shot. This is the HB Lovecraft Lovecraft movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Monster Apocalypse. Yep. That was the Tim Burton. OK. Uh, Preacher. Yep. Based hey. on the comic. Yeah. Oh, my God. Scary stories to tell in the dark. Is yep, it yeah. that one? Wow. OK. Uh, Alaska. Alaska was a pilot. I okay, shot. Okay. And I would say pilots are sort of certain special case because you go into pilots knowing there's a really good chance they won't ha- move forward. So yeah. there's a baked in sense of like, okay, it's, if it happens, great. If it doesn't, it's okay. I know. Right. I get that. Barbarella. Barbarella was with Drew Barrymore. I love it. Oh, wow. oh good script. my God. Yeah. What, what happened with that? It just, it was a really expensive um, sex romp. Mm-hmm. What about Bob the Musical? What is that? Everyone in town has worked on Bob the Musical. It's a project that I think is still at Disney. It's about a guy who wakes up in a musical. It's really good. Mark Shaman wrote some really good songs oh, for so it. Funny. Oh, I love Mark Shaman. Yeah. I, that, that's a movie that probably will get made at some point, but the money against it, it's got to be $20 million. Oh, my God. And what about uh, Tarzan? Was that? I wrote a Tarzan movie for Warners, and it's um, technically the same thread of the movie that came out. But my Tarzan was set present day in civil unrest Africa rather than the past. Oh, interesting. And uh, I really loved it. What about Fenwick Suit? Fenwick Suit is an early project back when I was uh, doing mostly kids' book adaptations. It's a guy whose suit comes to life. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. That's yeah. cool. That is uh, cool. And then you mentioned the Fantasy Island is on mm-hmm. here. Uh, Demonology. Demonology, another early project before Go came out. It is uh, like... Uh, like clueless, but set against the apocalypse. Oh, that's fun! Oh yeah. my god, that's yeah. cool. I love that. That's so yeah. cool. Now, obviously, you've written a lot of these movies that are dead. Are there scripts in your drawer somewhere that you, you know, occasionally like return to and go back to and sort of tinker with? And yeah, there are a few that I think will probably at some point come to life. And so, um, every once in a while, I'll, I'll revisit them. And so, I have. A, I'm lucky to have an assistant. And I also have some other folks who work with me and. Um, we do a weekly staff meeting. And so on our big list that we sort of go through, there's all the projects that are actually active. But then mm-hmm. we always have at the very bottom, like the sort of let's not completely forget about these last few right. things. Right, right, right. And there's a few folks there that uh, I think could eventually happen. Um, do you do you have a uh, social media? Do you do? You I do. I'm, I'm on Twitter at John August. Also, Instagram at John August. And, uh, the, uh, and the podcast that you the podcast do. is called Script Notes. And so easiest way to find it is just my website is johnaugust.com. Um, so you can find script notes there, but also wherever you're listening to this podcast. Right. Great. 
Absolutely. That's awesome. That's awesome. And one other thing I just wanted to ask you, you know, you're well known for your advocacy of other writers. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious as to why you feel the need, you know, to give back. I don't think enough writers do that. I'm Mm -hmm. just curious what motivates you to do it. I always remember that growing up in Colorado, I had no sense of what a screenwriter was or what a screenwriter did or how to even, how it even get started. And so that if I were the kid growing up in Colorado today, I would go online and would look for advice. And a lot of the advice I would get would be terrible. Um, and so if I could be a place that offered some pretty good advice, that would help. And it would just sort of be better for the world. If some people who actually knew what they were talking about would talk about it. I often need to find I have needed to research like really obscure things. Like for a preacher, I needed to research cowboy hats. And God bless this one person has this, this the history of cowboy hats and it has a detailed <laughs> of all the stuff in the year by year. And it's like that's an actual website, an actual website, uh, a history amazing. of cowboy hats. And uh, so if I can help and be that reference for folks, great. And then that spills into sort of general advocacy. Um, you know, I'm on the board right now for the Writers Guild, and it's just recognizing that uh, I was very fortunate to come into screenwriting at a time when it was growing and there really were opportunities and things are going to, things are changing quickly. And I want to make sure that the next me has the same opportunities I did. It's probably there too. Fantastic. I actually wanted to just do one more thing. Go ahead. Go Um, ahead. There's, there's a line in big fish Mm -hmm. uh, where it's Edward, I believe says the more difficult something became, the more rewarding it was in the end. Mm. And I'm just curious, since you wrote those lines, since you wrote that line, do you follow your own advice in terms of that? I'll say that the the feeling of achieving something being a real, the verbness of that, where like there was actually work, where there's effort to do it, it does feel more rewarding. It's the difference of like, you know, earning a hundred dollars rather than spending, you know, giving you a hundred dollars. You feel sure. like there's there's more weight behind it, and so yeah, I guess I do feel that. I think you know, a lot of the stuff we talked about today has been, I'll hear all the good things, but like I'll hear some really bad things too, and. I think if I were to take away all the bad things, I wouldn't have had the sort of fullness of experience that I've had. And so I, I kind of need those bad things just so I actually understand, um, you know, to appreciate when stuff goes well. That's awesome. Thank you so much for Great. joining us today. We really appreciate Thank your you. time. Pleasure. Never Surrender is produced by Western Sound. Executive producers are Jack Herguth, Stephen Kramer Glickman, and Ben Adair. Producers are Sabrina Fang and Cameron Kell. Music by Hannes Brown. On social media, you can check us out on Instagram at Never Surrender Pod, on Twitter at Surrender Pod, and on Facebook at Never Surrender Podcast. You can also email us at Never Surrender Podcast at gmail.com to share your own stories about how you struggled, failed, and ultimately never surrendered. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 